Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Welcome, everybody, uh, to this afternoon's event entitled A Zippier Economy Lessons from the 1992 Hilmer Competition Reforms. I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Lee, my former colleague and friend, the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, to speak with us today. Not only is Andrew a great friend of the university and, might I say, the university sector on the whole, he's, a, he's spoken out many times about the contribution that higher education makes to the national interest and we're grateful. He's also a proud alum, having graduated with first-class honours in arts law. Prior to being elected uh, to his current role in 2010, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and he holds a PhD in Public Policy from Harvard University. He also hosts a podcast called The Good Life, The Andrew Lee, and Andrew Lee in Conversation, all about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. And those of you who've seen Andrew's many writings and um, contributions to public life will know that he's always been an advocate of good evidence, looking at the facts and using that to make our lives better. Today he's going to share why he believes that competition policy is fundamental to economic dynamism and rising living standards. I'd now like you to ask and join me in welcoming Andrew Lee. Well, thanks so much, Kirsten, for a really generous introduction. It is a real pleasure to be here, hosted by you. I'd like to thank Sydney Ideas, the University of Sydney's flagship public talks program. Uh, having spent six years at Sydney University, having... Uh, edited uh, Oni Soir for a year, it is really good to be back. Uh, and given the topic of today's presentation, lessons from the 1993 Hilmer Review and the subsequent national competition policy reforms, it is a real pleasure to acknowledge Professor Fred Hilmer, who's joined us here today. <laughs> it's really exciting and really daunting to have you here in the audience, Fred, so thank you. Uh, as Professor Hilmer told me recently, the national competition policy reforms were big, bold and far-reaching. He's right in every respect. They're regarded as among the most significant economic reforms in Australian history. And we're still, that we're still talking about them some 30 years later reflects what they did to produce a zippier economy a generation ago. Successful reform often looks deceptively easy afterwards. This one took some years to unfold, roughly 1992 to 2005. It took cooperation across state, territory and federal level, substantial financial incentives and countless meetings, none of them on Zoom. And the reforms didn't receive universal support at the time. That they succeeded is a credit to Fred Hilmer and to the reforms architects. Above all, it took a big idea. Competition was the key to ensuring that economic reform delivered for regular Australians. In his book afterwards, Paul Keating wrote, we brought a new word to the labour lexicon, competition. Competition is our word, not their word, not the Tories' word. Paul Keating said, we were tired of paying twice as much as we should be paying for cars, for telephones, for clothing, for electricity. By cutting tariffs and by lifting domestic competition, we created a low price structure, thereby allowing people's wages to go further. 
Keating wasn't the first great Labor leader to appreciate the power of competition. Labor Attorney General Lionel Murphy had introduced the 1974 Trade Practices Act, ending decades of businesses lawfully colluding at the expense of Australian consumers. Keating knew it fell to Labor again to raise the whole notion of competition. National competition policy was how he sought to deliver for Australian households. The objective, better prices, allowing people's wages to go further. It wasn't just ordinary workers paying too much. Keating also believed businesses were paying too much for their inputs, particularly services. The economic reforms of the 1980s, floating the dollar, financial deregulation and reducing tariffs exposed many sectors to international competition for the first time, promoting growth and efficiency. But this highlighted that many areas of the domestic economy faced minimal, if any, competitive pressure. Sectors such as transport, electricity, water and telecommunications were re still relatively untouched by competitive forces. For a country striving for a seamless national economy, it made little sense that competition rules didn't apply to professional services, government businesses or agricultural marketing. There was a recognition that if Australia's domestic economy wasn't competitive, then the country would struggle to compete internationally. 30 years ago this month, the press release announcing an independent inquiry into competition policy in Australia hit fax machines across the country. Keating turned to business leader and academic Fred Hilmer, along with Jeff Taprell, a senior lawyer, and businessman Mark Rayner. The Hilmer inquiry would spark the national competition policy reforms. A generation on, my talk aims to answer three questions. What did Hilmer do? How did it affect the economy? And what can competition reformers learn from it today? Let me start by giving a sense of the timeline, the institutions involved, and where the momentum came from. By the early 1990s, work was already underway to improve domestic competitiveness. Australia started to see government business enterprises operate more efficiently, exposed to competition, or in some cases, privatised. We started to see reform or removal of inefficient regulations in agriculture, aviation, electricity, finance and transport. For example, the two airlines policy ended in 1990. This policy had, for decades, restricted domestic aviation to the publicly owned Trans-Australia Airlines and its private sector competitor, ANSET. Subsequently, open skies prevailed. In general, that's been a good thing for flyers. Sure, airline competition did mean that we got Tiger Air Australia, but airline competition also meant we pretty soon no longer had Tiger Air Australia. To switch from air metaphors to ocean metaphors, the tides may have been turning slowly, but there were big waves of reform on the horizon. In July 1991, the Prime Minister, Premiers and Chief Ministers agreed that a national approach to competition policy would be important. 
A couple of months after the Barcelona Olympics, Keating formally announced the Review International Competition Policy in October 1992. With almost the energy of Olympian Kieran Perkins in the pool or Kathy Watt in the velodrome, Professor Hilmer and his team got to work. They reported back to government in a matter of months, by August 1993. And their proposals represented a comprehensive, coherent and detailed program of microeconomic reform. Albeit one that political commentator Kerry O'Brien said might cause a journalist's eyes to glaze over. And given Kerry O'Brien's interest in programmatic specificity, that's really saying something. O'Brien later observed that the ambitious recommendations were riddled with political implications, but Keating was in the thick of it. The fact that Keating met on multiple occasions with Professor Hilmer speaks to the high priority that the Prime Minister placed on competition reform. By April 1995, the Council of Australian Governments had agreed to implement Australia's first national competition policy, which broadly reflected the reforms Professor Hilmer had proposed. It was time for action. Around 1,800 laws and regulations that restricted competition were reviewed and, where appropriate, reformed. Capturing the scale of the impact is hard today because it involves implementing so many things that we take for granted now. National food standards were introduced. A wide range of agricultural marketing boards that often set prices were abolished. The dairy industry was deregulated and milk prices fell. Retail trading hours were deregulated in most jurisdictions. It meant families no longer had to do their grocery shopping in a crowded, mad rush on Saturday morning before shops closed for the weekend. Liquor licensing rules were refocused on societal impacts. The list goes on and on and includes a myriad number of small reforms, such as the repeal of a New South Wales law that restricted the times when bread could be baked. It's hard to think of a part of Australia where bakers couldn't bake bread at particular times. It feels deeply foreign. It's kind of like Doctor Who, but with bread regulations rather than aliens. A second core impact of national competition policy involved major reforms to key markets. While the start of these reform processes predated national competition policy, they were incorporated into it in 1995. Energy markets had long been characterised by public monopolies that were state-based and highly bureaucratic. As part of national competition policy, a competitive national electricity market was established. And today our government's rewiring the nation plan continues that work, ensuring that intermittent renewables can offset each other to provide cheaper, more reliable energy. Barriers to the free trade of gas within and across state and territory boundaries were removed and third party access to gas pipelines facilitated. Retail energy markets were open to competition, enabling consumers, sometimes for the first time, to shop around for the best deals and lowest prices. 
A third component of the reforms was the restructuring of many government businesses so they operated more efficiently. While national competition policy didn't require privatisations, there were a number of major privatisations or part privatisations during the 1990s. They included Telstra, Qantas, the Commonwealth Bank, airports and rail businesses. While many privatisations had positive impacts, there were some unforeseen consequences, which I'll get to later. National competition policy also dealt with a range of less prominent but still important matters. Monopoly pricing was subject to greater scrutiny. Government businesses were to compete on a level playing field with their private competitors. And the competition law that Labor enacted in 1974 would now apply to all businesses across the economy. For example, lawyers, accountants, and other professionals practising in partnerships would no longer be exempt. The Council of Australian Governments agreed to establish the National Competition Council to oversee progress on implementation of these reforms. Importantly, the Commonwealth agreed to make payments to the states and territories conditional on the implementation of competition reforms. In the end, the, competition, the Commonwealth paid around $5.7 billion in competition payments to states and territories by 2005. So how did it affect the economy? Australia's productivity performance in the 1990s has been described as exceptional by Dean Parham. Labor productivity grew at over 3% a year, driving rapid growth in GDP and most importantly, in living standards. This performance persisted through the 1997 Asian financial crisis. Australia's productivity performance in the 1990s was one of the best in the advanced world and saw Australia move up the international ranking on average incomes. Now, there were many factors behind this productivity growth. Partly, it reflected the impact of computerisation. Partly, too, the economy was benefiting from a better educated workforce. But national competition policy reforms were clearly a critical factor behind the 1990s productivity surge. In its 2005 review of the impact of the national competition policy reforms, the Productivity Commission analysed the impact on the economy. That analysis estimated a permanent increase of 2.5% in Australia's GDP from competition reform. Today, that lift equates to around $50 billion a year, or around $5,000 per household. And it's worth thinking about that $50 billion a year annual cost when we think about the fact that the incentive payments to the states were a one-off payment of around $5 billion. Moreover, the Productivity Commission thought that its estimate of the benefit to the economy was conservative because it didn't capture the dynamic efficiency gains of more competitive markets. Given the limitations of its modelling, the report concluded the total boost to GDP for the reforms was likely to be considerably larger than that. While the economic impacts of national competition policy were substantial, the reforms also transformed the zeitgeist of the nation. They are a reminder that at our best, Australia has been a world leader in social policy, tariff liberalisation, income contingent loans and more. In those years, no country on the planet 
moved further and faster than Australia to implement competition reform and boost living standards. So on the 30th anniversary of the Hilma reforms, what lessons can today's competition reformers take from them? Drawing on my own reading of history and aided by Professor Hilmer's own reflections, I believe there's seven lessons for those of us seeking to improve the dynamism of the Australian economy today. Number one, paint on a big canvas. National competition policy was a big, bold and far-reaching package of reforms. It had the attention of a Prime Minister, who then got the attention of the nation. The Hilmer Review provided the intellectual firepower, the raw material that Prime Minister Keating turned into vision, and that rapidly deglazed eyes across the press gallery. It enabled the views of key interest groups to be heard and taken into account. Not everyone will love the idea of a more competitive economy. Rod Sims liked to say that competition policy is minus one times corporate strategy. Sims often points to corporate strategy guru Michael Porter, who demonstrated that firms can attain commercial success by reducing competition, erecting high entry barriers, keeping suppliers dispersed and weak, creating strong consumer loyalty, and reducing the likelihood of other firms being able to offer your consumers products that they see as substitutable for your product. If you're going to challenge Michael Porter and parts of the corporate strategy world, you need a really clear story about why more dynamism and more competition will make most people better off. Lesson two, money talks. There's always more good ideas jostling for attention then there is time to implement. The state and territory treasuries seeking to grab the attention of other parts of government, it helps if they can say that there's money on the line. The prospect of receiving substantial competition payments was clearly a factor driving states and territories to persevere with difficult reforms. Lesson three, you can only invent the hills hoist once. Maintaining competition in Australia is a dynamic rather than a static exercise. The Hilmer and national competition policy reforms were well suited to the challenges Australia faced in the early 1990s, such as the need to reform government businesses. But in the 2020s, we face new challenges. The focus of competition reform in our era should be on the private sector, where there's real concerns about Australia's economic dynamism. Emerging trends, such as the fall in job switching and business startup rates, just as market concentration and markups increase, suggest our economy has become less competitive. Almost 30 years later, many industries have changed beyond recognition. Digital platforms pose competition policy challenges that weren't conceived of in the early 1990s. Lesson four. Look after the poorest. National competition policy touched virtually every community, every business, and every consumer. While the reforms left people better off, at least overall, it wasn't the case for everyone. For example, there's little doubt that the economic reforms 
contributed to the challenges facing some rural communities. There was some criticism that the Hilmer Review and the Council of Australian Governments should have focused more on how to better manage the impact of competition reform on communities likely to be worst affected. Today, we've got better microdata than ever, allowing more precise modelling of the likely impact of reforms on different groups in the population. We should use it to ensure that reforms benefit the most disadvantaged. A more dynamic economy must not leave people behind. Lesson five, keep it green. 30 years ago, the focus was squarely on improving economic efficiency. Today, however, reforms to improve competition must also help protect and promote the environment. Energy markets are an obvious example. It'll be important to promote competition as they transition to a low emissions future. Australians want cheaper, cleaner energy, not one or the other. As we transition to zero net carbon emissions, we'll need to adapt our buildings, transport networks, manufacturing facilities and more. Competition policy should encourage this transition and the many new jobs that will accompany it. Lesson six, privatised monopolies can be dangerous. The Hilmer Review highlighted a danger that could arise when public monopolies were privatised. The mark of success of a privatisation is more than just the sale price. If a privatisation closes off competition or fails to regulate the prices that can be charged to users, then a deal that can seem savvy in the short term looks pretty foolish in the long term, amounting to a multi-decade tax on consumers and exporters. The aim of the game was just to make money now and anyone who owns a house could boost their bank balance by selling their home to investors who then rent your home back to you. The fact that most of us would think this is a pretty bad idea should make us reflect for a moment when we weigh the costs and benefits of privatising government assets. It'd be worthwhile for state, territory and federal governments to develop a better process for scrutinising potential privatisations through a competition lens. Because everyone agrees that it's not much good for taxpayers to get a hefty price from a privatisation only to be price gouged by the newly formed private sector monopoly. Lesson seven, federalism can drive reform. National competition policy could never have happened without Commonwealth, state and territory governments working cooperatively toward a common goal over a number of years. Through the Council of Australian Governments, these conversations happened on a regular tempo, both between ministers and officials. The fact that the Council of Australian Governments was the right vehicle then doesn't mean it's the only vehicle to drive reform today. Today, it could be done through the Council on Federal Financial Relations or some other body. But because of the nature of reforms required and the way that competition policy straddles jurisdictions, federalism and competition policy will always be intertwined. So to close, the Australian economy today needs a good dose of competition. Compared with the 2000s, Rates of startup business formation and job switching are down. Market concentration and markups are up. Productivity growth 
exceptional in the 1990s, was sluggish in the 2010s. Like most reform challenges, it's easier to outline the problem than craft a solution. That's why I've focused today on what we can learn from the biggest wave of Australian competition reforms in the past half century, the Hilmer Review and National Competition Policy. 30 years on, there's seven lessons from those reforms. Tell a big story. Deploy financial incentives for reform where possible. Solve the next problem, not the last one. Protect vulnerable communities. Promote changes that improve both economic dynamism and environmental sustainability. Beware of privatised monopolies. Use federalism to drive reform. Microeconomic reform requires cooperation and an alignment of incentives. It also requires conversations about our vision for the nation. The national competition policy reforms of the 1990s improved the lives of Australians. A new wave of competition reforms will deliver better prices and more consumer choices. It'll help improve living standards of Australian households by increasing access to the latest technologies. It'll also help Australia maintain the international competitiveness of its industries. This especially matters for service industries, which often rely on digital competition. Australia's benefited from the Hilmer reforms in many ways. Even the lower bound estimate suggests the typical Australian household is thousands of dollars a year better off than if the reforms had not been undertaken. It's a remarkable achievement. We should continue to learn as much as we can. After all, the problems facing the Australian economy today are just as acute as in 1992. We desperately need competition reform. Many of those issues are at a state and territory level. Problematic privatisations, restrictive zoning laws that impede new startups, state housing taxes that make it expensive for people to move to take up a better job. Occupational licensing rules that make it harder for startups and job switches. Energy markets that don't work as well as they should. One of the central insights from economics is that competitive markets generally serve consumers better than private monopolies. Today, competition provides an organising framework for tackling some of the biggest challenges facing households and the macroeconomy. In Australia, competition isn't purely a national issue. It's a compact between states, territories and the federal government. We need to work together to get it right. If competition policy could lay this groundwork for another 1990s type productivity surge, the result would be more innovation and more startups, more opportunities for workers and more choice for consumers, better use of technology and household budgets that stretch a little further. In short, a zippier economy. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. So there you have it. In seven easy steps, we've got a zippier economy and we get to take on the legacy that Professor Hilmer gave us 30 years ago. So thanks so much for joining us on that and um, outlining those ideas to us. Can I just start with one question, the last point there. You talked about 
um, the need for the cooperative federalism to achieve these kinds of reforms. And I noticed your comments in the Sydney Morning Herald today and I wondered whether the political environment is right for this kind of ambition, given that politics is probably more divided than it once was 30 years ago, things are more combative. Do you think it's possible to do all of the things that you've just outlined? So, as I was in the, uh, the, the car coming here, I was reading the transcript of the press conference that Anthony Albanese and Don Perrottet did this morning. And it started off with Michael McCormack introducing Anthony Albanese, saying nice things about him, Anthony saying nice things about Michael and about Dom, uh, and then one of the state MPs introducing Dom, and there was a sense of shared purpose around that. And that's... It's something that we just take for granted in the context of a, natu of a natural disaster. And, you know, they're, they're there working on floods. I think Australians would have been shocked if they'd been, you know, snarking at one another in that context. But the fact that those leaders are able to do so in a, in a quite combative in political environment for Dom Perrottet, mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's behind in the polls at the moment, facing an election next year, but still stepping above party politics today... Uh, does make me think that we can we can achieve it, and it shouldn't it shouldn't be beyond us to have that sort of uh, conversation. Uh, the Jobs and Skills Summit had mm -hmm. uh, had a bit of that flavour, and a lot of this stuff person need not be terribly ideological. Mm. Uh, you know, I think we can all agree that allowing bakers to start baking bread at whatever time <laughs> they want to uh, is a good idea, and and I I might make an argument for that uh, around this being important for low-income bakers to make more money. Um, someone, one of my Liberal colleagues might say this is all about the freedom of business owners. But mm. we can agree on the outcome. Terrific. Yeah. Thank you. Love a bit of ambition in a Federal Minister. <laughs> it's good to see. Um, that answer gives us a great opportunity to segue into what sectors require particular attention from a competition perspective. I assume the bread baking's sorted. What's next? <laughs> uh, well, I've, I've talked before mm. about uh, some of the challenges we've had around uh, privatisations and I think being aware of uh, the risks of getting privatisation wrong is important. So if states and territories are looking at potential privatisations, having a better process for scrutinising that matters. Uh, and then there's, there's also all of the zoning and licensing issues which cut across a whole, whole range of sectors. Uh, if you're trying to start up a business having a little bit more flexi flexibility there is, uh, is important. Mm -hmm. And for areas like hardware, you know, ultimately whether a large big box hardware store comes to, hardware chain comes to drive out all of the local hardware stores will turn often, not on overall competition rules, but how the zoning laws operate at a local mm -hmm. level. Terrific. Thank you. Um, you did talk a little bit about this in your, uh, in your formal speech, but Chris has asked a question about how do you break the government economic growth mantra that drives unsustainable population, social environment and resource consumption? I think it was point four that you talked about how we need to do it in a green way as well. Yeah. Does that yeah. mean you don't see it as either or? You think we can do both? No, I mean, Australia is 80% services, so uh, much of our production is not the uh, production of things that will break your foot if you drop on them. Uh, when we, uh, you become more productive in your job, uh, that doesn't necessarily use more stuff. Uh, so improving the productivity of a services-driven economy uh, oughtn't increase our footprint on the planet. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the fact, if you look at the trend in Sydney over the last couple of generations, uh, this is a city which is uh, has many more people, is producing much more stuff, 
and where the air quality is vastly better than it was uh, uh, 50 years ago. So we've managed with the issue of air quality to pack a whole lot more people in with a whole lot more economic output, uh, but a cleaner, a cleaner city. And, and my hope is we can do that with CO2 emissions as well. That's great. Speaking of uh, services industries, there's a question here about universities. I might move to that if I may. Um, Danik has asked a question about in what ways do you think Australian universities can best contribute to increase competition and a competitive startup market? What's your uh, mantra for us? Well, uh, so I think uh, offering products which are more different is important. Um, I was really struck, you know, it's what, uh, been over a decade ago now when Melbourne decided it would offer a four-year undergraduate degree, and people said this is outrageous. It was, at the time, probably the first example of undergrad innovation that we'd seen in decades. Uh, even if you thought it was a bad idea, my view was you should be cheering on Melbourne for trying something different. We don't need 40 universities that are clones of one another. I'd love to see a little bit more diverse, diversity and, and trying new models. I've always found it strange that there's not Australian universities pursuing more of the kind of uh, Dartmouth-Brown liberal arts-style college in Australia, focusing on super high-quality teaching as their differentiator rather than cutting-edge research. And so, you know, why a university like the University of New England doesn't pursue that model, I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure. Um, so, uh, so trying to produce stuff that is different, I mm. think, is, uh, is what I'd love to see more of in higher ed. Sounds great. Do you think there's more we could do in the, in the startup market? I know we certainly have ambition to do more there. Do you think there's a role that universities can be doing to do, do a few more inventions? Love to see it. <laughs> so you, you walk around the campuses of uh, MIT and Stanford and you just mm -hmm. stumble across a whole lot of startup spin-off mm. businesses. You walk around a campus of... Uh, uh, let's see, should be careful here. Uh, university, <laughs> don't need to name anyone. Exactly, a major Australian <laughs> university. And you come across a whole range of lovely cafes and bars. But the, you don't tend to see those co-located mm -hmm. startup businesses operating in the same way. Maybe that's because of the rules around IP. People occasionally mm -hmm. argue that there's an attempt to keep too much of the mm -hmm. IP. Uh, maybe it's because we're not inculcating that, that startup culture. Mm -hmm. I don't want every academic to be turned into a business person, but I'd love to see... Uh, graduates encouraged mm -hmm. to stay in close proximity. Uh, you look at the OECD data about the extent to which businesses collaborate with universities and we are way down the list. Mm -hmm. um, Kim Carr used to argue that you want some premium in the R&D tax credit mm -hmm. for firms that do university collaboration mm -hmm. in, in, in some way just to, just to start that conversation which we know can often be really productive for firms. Certainly a conversation I know we welcome and my colleagues in the research portfolio just would be would be cross with me if I didn't say we've had 35 startups here at the university in the last five years. Nice. Nine in 2019, the year before COVID hit, more than the CSIRO. So Great. we're quite proud of that, but that doesn't mean we don't think there's more we can be doing. Yeah. So um, welcome that kind of conversation, I think. Now, I should say, Kirsten, I don't know if Professor Hilmer um, wanted to make any comment at any point, but I would love it, love any reflect, reflections you, ha you, you had on it. Thanks, Andrew. My first comment is, I think you did a great job. And I think you reminded us of the benefits that competition brought and you reminded us about how difficult it is and what sort of commitment you need from all the areas of government to get a reform like that on the, underway. Um, the other comment is 30 years out of date, but what were the big areas then? 
And I don't think that's changed that much. Okay. The big area 30 years ago was energy. Well, it's energy plus now. <laughs> the second biggest was transport and the dimensions of that and the way in which um, we might address that through technology, electric cars, hydrogen, whatever. Uh, has, that's changed, but the need to get transport on a far more pro productive footing, I think, is as cute now as it was 30 years ago. The other, the other part of the work that we did then that I think was important, but it doesn't appear in the report, is that we tried to put examples in front of people that just showed how competition wasn't going to make life worse, it would make life better. And uh, one that I got a lot of mileage out of was sort of the quiz, where do you think the potato chips in McDonald's restaurants through Asia, uh, where do those Asian restaurants get their potatoes? And the answer was not Tasmania, it was not West Australia, the answer was Idaho. Well, why Idaho? And you got down to, well, look how big our farms are. There's not one in the, in the small farm who simply couldn't afford the, the uh, water treatment mm. and, and the irrigation and the technology of controlling output more, more effectively. And so what happened was we had no industry where we had a huge national advantage. Uh, and the only reason we didn't have the advantage was these silly rules. And we kept reminding people about that. Are you supporting that? And I think that gave a little bit of a human face yeah. to, you know, people who, when they're called economists, know it's deep down a bad word. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And thanks again for being here today. Such a great opportunity to be here with somebody, the architect of these reforms. I think you'll agree with me that uh, Andrew shared in some detail the contribution and ways in which we're all benefiting Yes. Um, from your reforms. So thank you for that. Not only have you made so many contributions to public life, led a substantial university, of course, but um, in so many different ways. So to go through that today has been terrific. Uh, you'll all agree with me that uh, the University of Sydney likes to say that we, that our staff, students and alumni represent leadership for good. And I think that if you look at the way that Andrew addresses complex public policy questions, looking at evidence, thinking widely, taking a wide range of deep and complex questions, but looking at ways that uh, through either simple or complex reforms challenges ways to make the lives of Australians better. And I think that we can say that if all of our staff, students and alumni approach it with the same energy and intellect that you do, then the world will be a better place and certainly Australia will be better off. But we're grateful that you've chosen the University of Sydney to um, host this conversation today. So will you join me in thanking uh, Andrew Lee for joining us here today and thank you for coming. Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond.